Thanks for coming today. I'm Laura Runs with the Cato Institute. And today, we're going to be talking about the Transportation Security Administration and probably larger DHS issues. Um, this handout was at the front, but this is a recently published paper by Dave Rickers about abolishing the Department of Homeland Security. We have a bunch of handouts like this up front, and if you don't get any today, they're available on our website, cato.org. Our first speaker today is going to be David Rickers, who's a legal policy analyst for the Cato Institute. He concentrates on civil liberties, counterterrorism, and criminal justice issues. Prior to joining Cato, he served in the United States Army as an infantry and special forces officer, including three tours in Afghanistan. He has been awarded the Army Commendation Medal and two Bronze Star Medals and continues to serve as a reserve judge advocate. Following that will be Jim Harper, Cato's Director of Information Policy Studies. Jim works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, and intellectual property. He was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, and he recently co-edited the book Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. He is also the author of Privacilla.org, a web-based privacy organization, and he maintains the online federal spending resource WashingtonWatch.com. And with that, I will turn it over to Dave. All right, well, thank you all for coming out. Uh, I have to note that, uh, as Laura mentioned, uh, my uh, uh, military affiliation, that any comments I make today are certainly mine and not those of the uh, Department of Defense or the Army. Um, so uh, a brief outline. Uh, we're talking about abolishing the TSA. Uh, once again, part of sort of the umbrella of the policy analysis I just published, abolishing the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, first, I'll talk about the proper federal role in counterterrorism uh, and from that, we'll move to the case for privatization in the passenger aviation industry. Uh, talk about uh, not just abolishing TSA, but uh, the Federal Air Marshal Service, uh, which I think has an emotional hook to 9-11 that uh, we have to talk about. Uh, and then uh, I'll give a little plug for my PA and I'll hand it off to Jim Harper, who will talk about uh, uh, some of the profiling and other uh, uh, identity issues that are involved in aviation security. So first, let's ask, what is the proper federal role in counterterrorism, uh, not just in aviation security, but generally? Well, to begin with, I think we have to, especially in these, these tight fiscal uh, realities we face today, uh, look at drawing the proper lines where we spend federal dollars. So to begin with, uh, fundamentally, is it a public good? And if it is a public good, we should spend public dollars. But if it's a private good, it should be left to the private sector. And uh, commercial passenger aviation is a private good. Uh, so in general principle, if we can keep that in the hands of the private sector, uh, we'd be allocating resources more effectively. Also, fiscal federalism is very important. I talk about this in the policy analysis with regard to wasteful federal grant programs where we spend federal dollars to uh, either subsidize or incentivize uh, state spending. Uh, we also give out a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, many millions of dollars in uh, uh, wasteful grants to localities for a lot of unused decontamination equipment. Uh, you've probably heard a lot of these stories. Um, and uh, finally, we have to scrutinize the cost effectiveness of whatever dollars we spend. And of the money that we've spent since 9-11 in Homeland Security, a lot of it's been wasted. In fact, a recent study by Professors uh, John Mueller and Mark Stewart found that in order to survive a cost-benefit analysis, increased Homeland Security expenditures since 9-11 uh, would have to deter, prevent, foil, or protect against 1,667 otherwise successful uh, Times Square type car bombs uh, uh, per year or more than four a day. Now there simply aren't that many terrorists out there uh, and uh, we've done a good job since 9-11 uh, 
of uh, shedding our liberties and a lot of dollars in the uh, futile pursuit of perfect safety. Uh, perfect safety is not attainable. And uh, so moving towards the case for privatization, I think we have to admit the fact that a lot of what we do in aviation security is security theater. It is efforts to make us feel safer, but they might not actually make us safer. And I would include in all in this uh, removing shoes, liquid quantity restrictions, body scanners, generally security theater. And as a noted security expert Bruce Schneier puts it, we'd be better off returning our security to a pre-9-11 regime uh, on the passenger side and focus on airport employee screening because they have access that we don't, uh, baggage screening for explosives, uh, and relying on investigation and intelligence work to intercept terrorist plots because that's a more effective use of resources, pays bigger dividends on the dollar. Um, however, there is no bureaucratic incentive to reach this conclusion and to enact these policies. Quite the opposite. In fact, bureaucratic incentives dictate essentially fighting the last war and uh, not letting an attack repeat itself. Sort of DMV logic, right? And because of this, wait times, uh, efficiency, inconvenience to the passengers, ultimate effectiveness are secondary concerns. Uh, to covering the reputation of the bureaucracy and the people in charge of it. There's also a general trend to creep away from a free society. I think it was striking how within a two-week period, the NFL screening at uh, stadiums, because one person snuck a taser into a, a football game, uh, went from just regular uh, metal detector, magnetometer, uh, screening to enhance pat-downs in a matter of two weeks. I mean, it's just an amazing knee-jerk uh, response that we're sort of programming ourselves into. Uh, and I think the only way we're ever going to get to a rational employment of aviation security resources is if we take government out of it, because the market will simply do a better job of allocating risk and resources to address the risk uh, than the government will. So. Do, have we seen some privatization? Well, we have in a form, and uh, this is the Screening Partnership Program. Uh, as you probably know, it was created by ATSA, the authorizing uh, legislation that created the TSA. Uh, it started as a pilot program with five airports to ascertain whether or not it was feasible to do airport security after 9-11 the way that we had always done airport security, letting air, uh, airports and airlines uh, provide the security. Uh, after that Initial five airport test was a, deemed a success. It expanded to 16 airports. Uh, however, that 16 airport uh, count has been capped as the TSA has used uh, has moved toward unionization and a collective bargaining agreement. Um, from this, we've seen that uh, private security, or at least contract security, uh, is no less effective uh, than uh, the TSA. Uh, federalized screeners, and no one on the side of federalizing is pointing toward a lack of effectiveness. And, uh, uh, and, and in fact, in many of the studies we've found that they're more effective uh, than the federalized screeners. And there's a bit of a war of numbers here, but generally speaking, I think we can say that, that it will not cost more than employing federalized TSA screeners if we were to have the, uh, the screening partnership program screeners. Uh, a quick rundown, there's a, there's a lot of data going back and forth, but the initial bearing point study found that contract screeners performed consistent or better than TSA screeners, and screening costs were marginally reduced in most cases. And the report also noted that had the uh, airport uh, security directors had the ability to really use all of the tools of a, of a uh, privatized system, they would have been more efficient. 
TSA has countered that uh, the screening partnership program, the contract screeners would be as much as 17% more expensive. The GAO has questioned the techniques, it cut it down to 3% more expensive, but the TSA has failed to uh, enact all of the data, uh, uh, the number crunching reforms, so there's, there's this war of numbers about how much it'll cost. Uh, but I would note that the recent uh, House uh, Committee on Transportation Oversight found that privatizing LAX, the Los Angeles International Airport alone, uh, would save $38 million annually for the taxpayers. Uh, and that in some cases the contract model can be 65% cheaper than uh, TSA employees. But let's note that the screening partnership program is not privatization. It is an instance where the TSA uh, gives permission to the airport to move towards a contract model. They select the contractor who will provide the security. They dictate the methods by which security is provided. That's not privatization. Uh, and if we were to actually move to a fully privatized model, all of these costs would be off of the back of the taxpayer and on the flying public because the cost would be of providing security would be paid for uh, by uh, the costs within the, the uh, airline ticket that you would buy and not uh, as it is now about 25% is paid by a TSA fee, $2.50 added on to each ticket and the rest is picked up by the taxpayer. But if you were to pass all of it on to the flying public and not the taxpayer, uh, then you would see a, uh, a significant reduction in costs, uh, wiping out almost all of the federal costs for providing aviation security. Now, there's two routes to do this. Um, first, just outright abolish the TSA and allow for the insurance market to provide the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the fallback if there is a terrorist attack. And let's admit that terrorists have a great incentive, uh, uh, airlines have a great incentive to prevent terrorist attacks. Going bankrupt is a great incentive not to allow terrorists on your planes. Um, and if there is some squeamishness about allowing the free market to do the work and to allocate risks effectively, uh, the Safety Act uh, uh, can provide some limited liability for certified security uh, providers. So if the airlines and airports were to get certified, then there would be some cap on liability. But I think that the, the pure market incentives, uh, don't let your planes get blown up so you don't go bankrupt, is a pretty good model. Um, so uh, as we move towards unionization, a few words about that. First, this will be a much more rigid labor model than the one that we currently have. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, even though the initial collective bargain agreement as, as agreed upon in the initial uh, letter uh, put out by Director Pistol uh, at the start of the, the uh, uh, unionization process, uh, even though it puts uh, some of the full-time labor provisions off the table and says we're only going to allow collective bargaining over the part-time uh, labor provisions, that's actually a, a really significant piece of the puzzle because uh, right now, TSA maintains what is called the National Deployment Force, and this is a uh, pool of TSA screeners that deploy to offset re uh, seasonal demand and other labor shortages at the uh, non-SPP, the federalized airports, at a significant additional cost uh, to the taxpayer. Now, why is it significant? Because you're picking up a federal employee, you're flying them to some other place, you're paying for a hotel room, you're paying per diem, and you're displacing them from their family. So instead of doing that, I think it's obvious that letting the market take care of this and letting those airports who have a seasonal flux uh, use a, a, a contractor, use part-time contracts to fill that need, uh, I think that's a much more effective and economic, a better economic model uh, for that piece of the security market for aviation security. 
Uh, and I would also note that collective bargaining has not worked out well. Uh, in other contexts, the Border Patrol has been stung several times uh, with the um, uh, Federal Labor Relations uh, Authority uh, dictating uh, by terms of collective bargaining, uh, uh, disciplinary uh, issues within the Border Patrol, someone falling asleep at their post, is that something we can discipline over? Do we have to have a warning letter first? Uh, training issues, uh, uh, so transporting that into the uh, TSA is actually going to decrease our security uh, and, uh, and actually increase our labor costs. So it's, it's just a lose-lose for the taxpayer. Um, so uh, I'm going to move on now to uh, the Federal Air Marshal Service and how uh, I think abolishing the Federal Air Marshal Service is important because it makes a, a significant uh, emotional uh, leap to get past the events of September 11, 2001. I say this because it was a hijacking. And we make the emotional connection between a hijacking and an air marshal by saying, man, if we had just had air marshals on those flights, that wouldn't have happened. Um, I think that, that uh, as we go through the facts, we'll see that uh, we have sufficient counter hijacking resources in place. We do not need the air marshals. And admitting that reality and realizing that this is an area where we are strong would undermine some of the, the inflated terrorist threat that uh, is bandied about in the media quite frequently. So a bit of history about the Air Marshal Service. Uh, first, there are a few dozen. I think the number is actually 33 prior to 2000, uh, September 11, 2001, uh, and it grew to over 1,000. Uh, the number is classified right now, as it should be. Uh, as uh, Representative Duncan from Tennessee has noted, uh, we spent $860 million for an average of four, it's actually 4.2, but four arrests a year. Uh, so that's $215 million average uh, spent per arrest. Uh, that number is now 930 million, so, uh, so the, the, the math is actually worse. Uh, but I think we have to discuss the, you know, what's our metric, what's our, our yardstick for success with regard to the air marshals? Is it arrests or is it deterrence? And should we view them not so much as law enforcement officers, uh, because by the time they're making an arrest, a lot of systems prior to the air marshal intervening have broken down, uh, or is it to deter hijacking attempts. And if the rationale is to deter hijacking attempts, then you don't really need a law enforcement officer, you just need a security guard. And if we envision the air marshals as uh, plainclothes security guards, they actually, it makes a lot more sense than using federal law enforcement to do that. Uh, so as I said, the, the, th the uh, you know, there's a lot of time and distance from September 11, 2001, and uh, terrorists have changed tactics. And the tactics employed uh, on that day uh, are not the tactics we see today. We don't see attempts to get into the cockpit by groups of uh, men armed with melee weapons. We see people trying to secret explosives onto the plane. Uh, and because of this change in tactics, even the airlines are now questioning the utility of maintaining air marshals as they have been employed since 9-11. Uh, and they've actually recently asked the Federal Air Marshal Service to please take your officers out of first class because you're using our prime real estate, our most uh, lucrative real estate in the plane, and the threat simply isn't there, uh, you know, necessitating putting your officers in between the bulk of the body of passengers and the cockpit. Well, if the airlines have made that, that leap, then why can't we? Uh, so we should also note that it's really not a very effective, uh, in terms of cost effectiveness, getting back to making rational decisions about spending money. It's not a very good deal for the taxpayers. Uh, so what are the odds of an air marshal stopping a hijacking attempt? Well, right after 9-11, uh, 
Uh, some proposed uh, in Israeli style 100% coverage, put an air marshal on every flight. That's actually pretty much prohibitively expensive. Uh, and we would spend more than we spend on the whole of the TSA, uh, about $8 billion right now. Um, we would spend actually $9.3 billion to reach 100% coverage. So right now what we have is 10% coverage. Uh, and one study which assumed air marshal presence on 10% of all flights uh, still found that the cost per life saved was $180 million. Now that is far more than the Office of Manage and Management and Budget recommendation of $1 million to $10 million. $180 million is a pretty uh, extreme amount of uh, money to spend on a per, you know, per life saved basis. However, hardened cockpit doors, which we installed right after 9-11 on all airliners, are exceedingly cost effective with an estimated $800,000 per life uh, saved. So that's a, a very good expenditure of resources. And I think we should note, just to segue here into what's changed, there are two big changes since 9-11 uh, and actually on 9-11 that changed the rationale of hijacking. The first, of course, is the aforementioned hardened cockpit doors. Very cost effective, very good uh, counterterrorism measure to employ. The second is that the passengers know that they have to fight back. We're playing for all the marbles now. We are not going to get uh, hijacked, flown to some remote tarmac, and negotiate for the release of political prisoners. The, the airliners are now a cruise missile, they're weaponized, and they want to crash them into high-value uh, terrorism targets. So three-quarters of the way through on Flight 93, the passengers fought back, and the unorganized militia took down Flight 93. And since that time, we've seen in unruly uh, passenger incidents, we have about 200 a year, the passengers react, they subdue fellow passengers who, uh, who try uh, to, uh, uh, to conduct a terrorist attack. We saw this with both the shoe bomber and the underwear bomber, both tackled by uh, flight attendants and fellow passengers. And if you just do a Google search on, uh, on unruly passenger subdued, you will be astounded at how frequently this happens uh, with uh, not just terrorists, but, uh, but being intoxicated can get you uh, hogtied by your fellow passengers. Um, so, but if you think, if we are attached to this idea of having armed counter hijacking personnel on aircraft, uh, the deterrence is actually enhanced if it's privatized. Why is that? Because the entire critique of cost effectiveness with regard to air marshals is only possible because we live in a pretty open society. So because their bottom line budget is a matter of public record, we can look at that and say, was pretty cost ineffective. Now, if this was employed by the airlines and Delta had a body of air marshals that they employed, like private, plainclothes security guards, Southwest had one, and you know they would periodically show, uh, you know, an advertisement advertising the uh, the prowess uh, of the air marshals in, in close quarters uh, firearms marksmanship. You know, that's good deterrence. And when you ask how many they have and how frequently they're employed, they just say, well, you know, that's just part of our overall operating budget and you don't know. That's deterrence. And you get that from a private model, not a public one. Uh, I should also note that in terms of having armed personnel on, on the aircraft, uh, if, you, if you're attached to this idea, then, uh, then the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program, the means uh, by which we, we arm pilots, uh, is a great deal for the taxpayer. We spend $25 million a year on the whole of crew training, including the Federal Flight Deck Officer or the Armed Pilot Program, because the pilots volunteer for it and they foot the bill, they travel to the training, they pay for the expenses associated with being qualified for the program. 
That's a great deal uh, for the taxpayer. And honestly, you know, the skill level required for, uh, for an armed pilot shooting, uh, you know, shooting at someone breaking through the already hardened cockpit door, which is unlikely. But if it happens, you don't, you don't really have to be, uh, you know, uh, as, as proficient as an air marshal to, to get that done. Uh, and uh, I would note that, that uh, uh, you know, we have a, a, a body of pilots who are willing to do this. Seventy percent of them have some military background, and so I think that they're, you know, that they can do uh, that job in an, in an extremist situation. Um, so now, while I have a captive audience and I've got you in your chairs, I'm going to talk about my policy analysis for a little bit. Uh, so I talk first about how the Department of Homeland Security, as an umbrella organization, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, on Capitol Hill, we always uh, hear this proposal how we need to have one committee that oversees all DHS operations on, in each chamber. That is a completely unrealistic goal. There are 108 committees that have oversight over DHS. Why is that? Because when you take 22 previously unconnected federal agencies and you stick them under one management umbrella, that requires a lot of oversight. So this one committee business is completely unrealistic. And can you imagine if we did that, the size of that committee? What would the staff look like? Uh, so you would have a, uh, uh, an unworkable management problem within the staff to supervise the DHS if you were to do that. Uh, and honestly, as a management theory, that this is called span of control, the number of subordinates that you can have under one supervisor, or in this case, the number of subordinate agencies you have under one supervisory uh, administrative umbrella. If this made sense, then in the free market, there would be one company, company, right, aggregating everyone's goods and services into one place. If this made sense in terms of government, all of the duties and responsibilities in the cabinet would have been lumped together under one person, the secretary of government. It doesn't make sense. We haven't done those things. Uh, it's simply an unworkable model. Uh, uh, one the next part of it is abolishing the TSA. I've talked about that. Uh, I also go in depth on uh, waste and federal grant programs, uh, specifically the uh, State Homeland Security Program and the Urban Area Securities Initiative. And then I uh, wind up talking about uh, federal funding for fusion centers, and these are state and local organized uh, intelligence analysis cells that I think uh, spend a lot of money duplicating uh, the efforts of the FBI in counterterrorism and are driven mostly by following the money. In the uh, recent book by uh, Dana Priest and William Arkin, there's a great section on Tennessee and why they have three fusion centers. Why do they have three fusion centers? Well, they didn't think they needed them, but there was grant money, so let's have three. Uh, so the bottom line is, is there's actually a much smaller terrorist threat out there than is advertised much of the time. And spending our, uh, our, uh, our, our public dollars, our treasure, is an important task of government, and I think that abolishing both the Transportation Security Administration uh, and the DHS is a good step in the right direction. Thank you. As David said, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, these are important issues to the country, obviously, and, and complex issues. I think we have a good team at the Cato Institute working on uh, these kinds of issues, counterterrorism and security, from a lot of different angles along with David, who I think gives a, a, an excellent, clear-eyed assessment of things in his, in his uh, recent policy analysis, abolished the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, my colleagues Chris Preble and Ben Friedman and I, over the last three years or so, uh, have been working on counterterrorism policy. We conducted uh, a pair of conferences, one in early 2009 and one in early 2010, where we brought in experts from around the country and world on, on the various aspects of terrorism and, and talked together with them a two-day conference in 2009 and a full day on 2010. 
Our book, Terrorizing Ourselves, which Laura referred to, uh, is some of the thinking that goes into counterterrorism. Uh, there are a lot of dimensions to this problem, and it's a complicated problem, but, uh, but we're working through them slowly but surely as a nation. Uh, among, the, among the chapters in, in, that, in that book are some chapters on communicating about terrorism, which I think are particularly helpful to Hill staff, understand the kinds of messages that people will absorb and that people need to hear about terrorism in general and in the event of any, any kind of emergency. Uh, how you and your offices communicate with the public about these things is an important part of securing the nation um, not only against terrorism but against overreaction, which is really the goal of terrorism is to cause overreaction. What we're talking about here today really is, is a, a large overreaction. The creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the creation of the Transportation Security Administration were overreaction. Well-meaning, of course, uh, a little bit too urgent, yes, because we didn't know how to respond to this, uh, this attack on September 11th at the time. Uh, we're learning now, and I think what we're learning is that uh, some of the reactions we had in the immediate aftermath were overwrought, were that kind of overreaction that we want to withdraw from. As Laura also mentioned, I was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. I served on it about six years until maybe a year ago or so. Uh, along with working on it, we were sort of brought in to work on privacy issues, but I can't work on an issue without looking at the whole picture. And so I spent a lot of time uh, understanding that agency, understanding the psychology uh, in, in the Department of Homeland Security and in the Transportation Security Administration. A lot of people well-meaning to a person but, but the incentive structures that they face, the, the, the things that they do for us aren't necessarily in the, in the best interest of the country in total. Uh, we have, after all, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as our, our national credo. Well, life is the part of that that refers to security. It's very important, yes. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness are the other side of that, if you will, letting us do what we want to do, letting us go where we want to go, letting us keep our taxpayer dollars to spend as our, ourselves. So taking the DHS's advice, which would pr provide 100% security, is not, is not our role. Uh, we have to, in Congress and elsewhere, counterbalance uh, the arguments that come forward from security agencies like DHS and, and TSA. So I've asked myself over these years, how would you do airline security? Hey, smart guy, how would you do airline security? And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the thinking that I've put into it and the thinking that I think should go into it. Uh, and it all boils down to risk management. Risk management is probably one of the most boring subjects you can find, uh, but I'll bore, with, bore you with it only briefly and go through the thought process that, that should go into to Homeland Security. First, of course, you've got to decide what you're trying to protect. You've got to choose, choose what it is that you're doing. Uh, that's called asset characterization. Literally, what is it that, that you're trying to do? Uh, a security agency will, will go too broad. I'm trying to protect America. Well, if you're protecting everything, you're probably actually protecting nothing. So choose something. Then the next problem is risk characterization or risk assessment. Now, that, that has is sort of a four-step process. You need to understand vulnerabilities. Those are weaknesses. Now, lots of things have weaknesses. Airplanes have weaknesses. Airports have weaknesses. Everything has weaknesses. That's not damning. You also have to understand threats and hazards. That's something animated to, to, to do some kind of harm. Examine those, understand what they are. With those two in mind, you, you compare likelihood and consequence. How likely is it that a bad thing is going to happen, and how consequential will it be if it does happen? Now, you can't boil this down to a specific science, but if you have likelihood and multiply it by consequence, that is risk. The process of thinking all this through will basically float to the top 
what the most important risks are and what the things are that you should address first. Responses also run a range. Responses include acceptance. In a lot of cases, we accept risk. We do that all the time when we cross the street against a light, for example. There's a risk we'll be hit by a car, but we're better off on the other side of the street uh, even if we encounter that minor risk of, of a car zooming down the road at us. Prevention, something that makes it impossible for that bad thing to happen. The cockpit door, the hardened cockpit door on an airliner, that's prevention because it's, if not impossible, very, very hard now to access the flight deck of an, of an airplane. Interdiction is something you do to stop a bad actor, to stop the threat from coming and manifesting itself in place. What we see at airport checkpoints is a lot of interdiction. Whether it's well-directed or not is a very open question. And then, of course, there's mitigation. Mitigation is the ability to recover. It's to minimize damage should the bad thing occur. All of these things, all these responses are choices that you have. When you go to choose among those, the way to choose among them is to do cost-benefit analysis. I actually used to work here in the Rayburn building in an office just right over there. Title V was my area of expertise, regulatory law, big cost-benefit analysis junkie. Um, not that you should live your lives the way I did. Don't make the mistakes I did. But you should understand what cost-benefit analysis is and understand that done well, it will guide government efforts at security just as it will private efforts at security. Cost-benefit analysis is basically about trade-offs. And in the security area, it's hard because you're trading dollars for security, you're trading privacy for the feeling of security, you're trading a lot of things that are hard to boil down to equal opposites. You're trying to sometimes determine whether a rock is as heavy as a line is long. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to solve these problems. We shouldn't figure out what the best way forward is because not doing cost-benefit analysis is most likely going to waste societal resources. We might overspend on security, getting very little bang for the buck, and just throwing dollars, well, out, of, out the window of an airplane, if you will. Uh, there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on the line, and it's, so it's important to do this kind of analysis. You're probably thinking, or if you're not thinking at all, suggest that you should think, what do I, what do I see in the Transportation Security Administration's um, risk assessment and cost-benefit analysis of, say, the, the strip search machines, the advanced imaging technology that are so controversial and many of you are probably hearing about uh, from your constituents? Well, I'd like to think something about the risk management study that the TSA has done, but the TSA has not done a risk management study of this. And it doesn't do risk management studies or cost-benefit studies of most of its programs. At least to be precise, it doesn't do anything that it publishes. The TSA's leadership, the Department of Homeland Security's leadership in, in both parties have talked about risk management and talked about risk quite a lot because I think they know they should be doing it. But essentially, they're not doing it. And GAO reports regularly um, point out the fact that TSA programs are not based on risk management, are not based on cost-benefit analysis. They're just doing what they do. With regard to the strip search machines, which again are sort of a hot issue and, and, and regularly get attention here on the Hill, uh, there is some good news. The Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, filed a lawsuit a little while back against the TSA about this, the policy of having these machines in place and the policy of ex extending their, their use. Uh, the court did not rule in EPIC's favor on the immediate merits, but it made a very important decision uh, as far as risk management goes, I think. It ordered the, the Transportation Security Administration to do a notice and comment rulemaking. That essentially means that the TSA has to put its thinking on the record. It has to produce a docket, it has to take comments, it has to re review for the public 
what it's doing and how it decided to do what it does. That means essentially going through the risk management steps that I talked about. What it means is that it's the quality of its risk management, which now must actually be done, can be reviewed by a court under a, a standard called arbitrary and capricious. Now that's a far, fairly low standard, but at least it's a standard. And so far the TSA has not met any standard for implementing the strip search machines or many other of its programs. Among them, uh, David talked about the Air Marshals program. I think the behavior detection officers are a, a program at TSA that's worth looking at. Uh, BDOs, as they're called, are supposedly trained to spot indicators among travelers of who's up to something bad, whether they're looking around furtively, whether they're sweating, whether you see palpitations in their neck that reflect a heartbeat. Well, there's no study that validates that this is actually a way of figuring out if people are doing bad or planning to do bad uh, to, to airline security, or whether people just had a bad argument with the taxi driver, or whether they're really anticipating badly the fact that they're going to have to go up to this checkpoint and get patted down in a way that's far too intimate for strangers to do to one another. The watch lists and ID checks at, at the airports, none of the risk management validation that it needs. A program called Future Attribute Screening Technology, or FAST. It's BDOs, but with lasers. That's right. We're talking about shining lasers and using cameras that will detect people's uh, biorhythms, bioactivities, bio to determine whether they plan on doing something bad. There's no science behind this, no good science anyway, and it hasn't been validated by risk management, nor has the liquids rule. Now we know that there's a potential liquid attack. It's real. Security is real. It's real these are real problems. But it hasn't been shown to the public that there's a real attack that merits the liquids rule. I hear tell, sometimes, sometimes you pick up signals that the liquids rule might be on the way out. Uh, it might go, that would be good, because it would reflect without risk management that the TSA has determined that the liquids rule is too much. You may remember the puffer machines that came and went. Uh, those machines were gonna, were, would, would blow air on a person, collect the air, and then examine the air to see if there was any particulate in it that reflected bomb making or any other dangerous ar article. Well, millions and millions of dollars went into the puffer machines, and then it found that they didn't work at scale. You couldn't get people through the puffer machines. They broke down regularly. Uh, millions and millions of dollars wasted because one or two million dollars, if, if even that, wasn't spent on risk management. This is stuff that, that the TSA is not doing. And the TSA uh, may not want to do it because it is a public institution. It's responsive to politics more than actual security. Now, politics often demands security. In fact, politics often demands over-security, but it demands misdirected security. So the TSA was very good in, the, in its early years at looking for small, sharp objects, like the objects that were used in the 911 attack. After Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, I like to say the TSA caught something of a shoe fetish. Now, after the underwear bomber, it got a little closer to us still. Before too long, new innovations in smuggling will bring the TSA yet closer to our lives in ways I care not describe to you today. So what are the roles? What are the roles between the public sector and the private sector in doing security? David does, does a good job of describing them in his paper. I think his, his, his thinking is sound. Government provides public goods. It provides the goods that cannot be provided privately, economically. National defense is a public good because no one individual, no corporation is going to go and defend the entire nation from invaders. We have an army that is a public good for protecting the nation from attack. That's a public good. Among the public goods in this area that the government can and should provide are the gathering of intelligence. 
some domestically, but certainly um, foreign intelligence that, that indicates where threats may come from. Uh, working with foreign governments to suppress terrorism, that is a role of the federal government. It's, it's a good one and it's an, an essential one and one that's had a great deal of success. And of course, traditional law enforcement, not necessarily at the federal level, but state and local law enforcement, they are there. A lot of their work does counterterrorism without even knowing about it. So people, people uh, call up the police, and this is how the, the, the London, uh, uh, the liquid bombing attacks were taken care of. People called up and said, there's some weird stuff going on near me. The government doesn't have to ask for weird stuff to be reported. When it asks, it gets over-reporting, and then it loses, it loses track. People, good people, know when something wrong is going on in their communities, and they know to call it in. That works. We're all part of this, this, this security effort. We work with the government on traditional law enforcement, obviously support it. The private role in security is substantial, and I think the way to think about it is to start with how we secure our own things in our own lives. Do we call the police every time we have something we need securing? No, absolutely not. We live in houses or apartments that have doors. The doors have locks. We close windows. We have dogs. We have alarm systems. We have neighbors who we might tell about the fact that we're going away for a week or two. There are all kinds of things that we do to secure our own selves and our own things long before we call on the government to step in. And I think our own experience with security is a good analogy for how security should be done for bigger risks or in bigger sets of infrastructure uh, like airlines and airports. Airlines do have the incentives they need if left alone, if given liability for failing. Airlines do have the incentives they need to secure their operations, to secure their passengers. Uh, they lose, and they lose big time if they, if they don't do those things. They also have to, and this is important, they also have to blend security with all the other interests that passengers have, including privacy and convenience, customer service, ease, all these things. And you're going to get a lot better from privately provided security from airports and airlines if it's done, if it's done privately. David mentioned insurance. Uh, insurance is a very, very sophisticated business. A lot of us don't know about it. A lot of it's really messy in areas like health. But insurers go to great lengths when, they're talking about, when you're talking about large infrastructure and large companies. They go to great lengths to make sure that they have a handle on the risks that they're, they're insuring. So insurers in this area will have a role in saying, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Let's take a look every year, every six months, every quarter to make sure that your security systems are operational and working, functioning well. Let's test it. Insurers will do this and reinsurers behind them. Um, these are all risk management systems, private risk management systems. They operate um, in a very diffuse environment. It's hard to crystallize and capture how these market forces work to create security, but they do. And I'll refer to you, I think one of the handouts was a, was a discussion called Transportation Security Aggravation, TSA, Transportation Security Aggravation, which you can also find on the Reason.com website with a, with a web search on that phrase where I debated with, with Bob Poole from Reason back and forth about how this stuff is done. And there was a lot in that, in that article about how insurance works, how the tort system works, liability, to make sure that the providers of, of, of airline air travel are going to provide a safe experience. The most important takeaway, if there is one from today, there are many, but, but one of the most important is that there will never be zero risk. There will never be zero risk. Governments often promise zero risk. Some of your bosses may inadvertently try to promise zero risk to constituents. Governments will do that, and they'll fail to deliver at a very high cost. 
The private sector will do its best to manage risks, and it'll do that while balancing privacy, comfort, convenience, and I think what's probably most important at the airport, courtesy, something we don't get from the TSA. Those are my remarks. I applaud David for his, his uh, paper and his point about the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA. We can do much, much better, and I think over time we will. Thank you.